0: canva talking presentations record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere anytime start designing today at canva.com designed for work this is design matters with debbie millman from designobserver.com For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about.
1: On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Bonnie Siegler about her career and about the conflict between designers and their clients. The clients aren't the problem. The clients aren't jerks. They're not assholes. It's not that they have bad taste or anything like that. Sometimes they just have no idea how to interact with professional creative people. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Let's say you have a business partner and you call your graphic design studio number 17. Your company is very successful and celebrated, but then you decide to strike out on your own. So what do you call your new company? If you're Bonnie Siegler, you call it eight and a half. Get it? 17 divided by two. You don't have to be good at math to see that Bonnie Siegler alone adds up to a formidable graphic designer, with a client list that includes HBO and the New York Times. Eight and a Half works on brand identities, online experiences, information design, motion graphics, book design, advertising, package design, and more. She joins me today to talk about the twists and turns of her incredible career. Bonnie Siegler, welcome to Design
1: Matters. Thank you, Debbie. Bonnie, I understand you wished you designed the CBS Eye logo. Why is that? It's my favorite logo. I just think it's perfection. It works really tiny. You can key into it. The animation you can do with it is amazing. It's just perfection. And it's an eye. You said that the longevity of the CBS logo is a true
0: testament to the power of simplicity and that a good logo should be easy to draw, that it's a sign of how easily it can be embedded in people's minds.
1: I always use the ability to draw a logo. If it's too complicated for someone to draw, like my 11-year-old could draw the CBSi. And look, it's one of the few logos that's never been redesigned. They've never had the need to redesign it.
0: You grew up in Huntington Station, New York, and I understand that when you were six years old, you were obsessed by a children's book by Leo Leone titled Little Blue and Little Yellow.
1: Why were you obsessed with it? I feel like you were in my head or something. Um, I love. I don't know. That's what was so cool about it, actually. I couldn't figure out what was so satisfying. I just looked at it all the time. As I became a grown-up, I still look at it. I was so excited to read it to my kids, who unfortunately didn't love it as much as I did. But there was just something about telling a story with nothing but shape and color and an emotional story to boot.
0: I only looked at it briefly in preparation for our interview and loved the design. It's, I mean, so, it's beautiful. so beautiful. But I wasn't able to see the whole book on Amazon. So unfortunately, I didn't read it. I'll get I, you a copy. Okay. <laughs> now, I believe because of that book... You designed your own bat mitzvah invitation, even though you didn't know what you were
1: doing. So what did it look like? (laughs) I'm making you crack up. I'm sorry. It's okay. It involved a rainbow, but only using warm colors. It was like reds, oranges, and yellows. And then I picked a really fancy typeface. And do you still have a copy of it? I do. Now that I want you to send me a copy of the book and a copy of the Bat
0: Mitzvah Invitation. I'll do that. Did the design of your invitation inspire your design for Fiona Rosenblum's book, You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah?
1: No, it didn't.
0: Um, (laughs) When I saw that you designed that, I thought, oh, my God, this is perfect symmetry.
1: When they called us with that book, I mean, just the name, You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah, I was overjoyed. But we did design an invitation for the cover. (laughs) It just didn't look anything like mine.
0: You discovered Andy Warhol when you were in high school. And as you read about him, you learned that there was a profession called graphic design. What did you think you might have wanted to be before that? And did ultimately your fascination
1: with Warhol inspire you to go to Carnegie Mellon? Oh, absolutely. I went there because he went there completely and totally. Um, my guidance counselor at school hadn't even heard of Carnegie Mellon. And so at that point, did you think you wanted to study graphic design? Oh, yeah, definitely. I knew before then. I think I realized around the time of my bat mitzvah, <laughs> I went to Disney World, and I was blown away by the branding in Disney World and each hotel and each restaurant in each area. And I'd never seen, I mean, now what we would call branding, but I thought it was so cool how the hotel amenities all matched from place to place. I was I didn't know why I was so taken with it, but I was. And so then I discovered Warhol, and that just changed my life. You
0: graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1985, but you didn't start at VH1, the first company you developed a big reputation at, until 1989. I had a really hard time finding anything. In the years between 85 and 89, Bonnie Siegler, what did you do?
1: Well, my first job was at a design studio where I met Emily. That was my very first job called Marcus Ratliff Design, and we did work for galleries and museums. And then I worked at The New Yorker in the marketing department. You did? What was that like? It was not a good design job, but I wanted to be there. William Shawn was the editor. I'm a huge New Yorker fan and have been my whole life, so I just wanted to be there. And I knew I'm 23 years old, so this is my only chance to have a job that was... It was okay if it wasn't perfect How does one get a job, job at The New Yorker?
0: At 23 years old, you're, I just, t- you're I coming to school and you... I went to Condé Nast and went to Vanity Fair. I didn't get the job, Bonnie.
1: <laughs> this was pre-Condé Nast, actually. William Shawn was still the editor. So it was an old building. It was just history. It was phenomenal. And um, did you drop your portfolio off? Yeah, yeah, That's how you did it. That's yep. how
0: I did it at Vanity Fair. Didn't get it, but...
1: <laughs> but then I worked at Univision, the Spanish-language television network, which was amazing also, and... I started at MTV. I worked at Univision during the day and at MTV from midnight to eight in the morning. And so when did you sleep? Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to work there. So that's what I did what I had to do.
0: And then you got the job at VH1 as a
1: result. I, yeah, I worked at MTV and then I moved to VH1. And so that was
0: really at the beginning of VH1. VH1 started, what, in 85, I think? Yeah, and I you, think so. You got there in 89? Yep. Um, so you were really there during the creation of the channel. What was that like at the time? It must have been
1: really, really fun. It was really, really fun. I had a great time. It was like graduate school. I mean, and then I graduated when I turned 30, as a lot of other people did. You're either a lifer or you're gone at 30. So in
0: 1993, when you were 30, (laughs) you and Emily Oberman started your own company, a company named Number 17. But I read that you made the decision to start your own business about three hours after meeting. We did. (laughs) Did you have a lot of money in the bank? What was your
1: sort of... I think we didn't have any idea what we were doing, and that was why it was sort of easy for us. I mean, it would have been much harder to do at 40 or 45. I think our naivete helped us. And I had a Mac 2, and we worked in my apartment. The bedroom was the conference room, and we worked in the living room, and... We just did it until we could afford an office, but we had no debt or anything like that. We just started working.
0: And how did you get your first clients together?
1: Well, our very first client was VH1. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That worked out. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't they weren't mad at you when you left. They were No, they hired us to do an advertising job which was based on something I had done at VH1, a campaign and the tagline was everything will be okay as long as I don't turn into my parents. That's sort of the motto of my life. (laughs) (laughs) So it was talking to our generation, the people VH1 wanted, and it was pretty much a universal feeling. My parents were a little hurt by it, but (laughs) (laughs) our first job at Number 17 was a print campaign that said, The difference between you and your parents, and it juxtaposed two images. So it was like a painting of the Madonna and Madonna, and it said, VH1, the difference between you and your parents.
0: Now, I know that when you were thinking about starting your own firm, you were both talking about how wonderful it would be to have had number 17 for 17 years. It ended up being a little bit longer than that. But over (laughs) the course of the 18 or so years you were together, what was your favorite project?
1: Well, the longest one was Saturday Night Live, probably. We started working with them in 93, We didn't redesign the logo for the first time until 97, I think. But from 93 to 97, we worked on parody commercials. It was just so much fun. And the writers were amazing. And we got to go to the show all the time and go to the after party and the after after party. And we were young so we could stay up till 4 a.m. It was wonderful and fun. And you recently did a big project for their 40th anniversary. Is that correct? Yeah, I did the Saturday Night Live 40th Identity.
0: In 2009, Newsweek merged with the news and opinion website, The Daily Beast. And while still working at Number 17, you also became the magazine's creative director. So I
1: guess the second time in your life where you have two full-time jobs. Right. But actually, it didn't go in that way. I, I helped Tina Brown invent The Daily Beast. I worked with her for a year to invent it and did its identity. And then when it became a viable entity, they hired a staff and it was launched. Then, almost a week after I finished with the Daily Beast, I started working with Newsweek. And it wasn't until I left Newsweek that these two ex-boyfriends got married oh. <laughs> and became one, which okay. was crazy. That is really interesting. I know. And it was one right after the other. So, What was it like to work with Tina Brown? She's really smart. Um, it was terrific. It was, it was a really good experience. I mean, just the idea of inventing a new news website. So seeing inside her brain and how it works and how she approaches stories and how to make it compelling online. And it was a long time ago now, but I learned so much. And it was sort of my graduate school for going to Newsweek then.
0: And so you redesigned Newsweek in its entirety. And you also oversaw the entire design of each cover and each issue until 2011. So that was quite a long time to be doing both all of your studio work as well as the redesign of a major weekly magazine. Yeah,
1: well, it wasn't the plan originally. We were going to redesign it and then they were going to do it in-house, but I sort of got roped into having an office at Newsweek and supervising it. And this wasn't your first magazine redesign. You had helped
0: create Lucky. Yep. You redesigned Colors. Um, but this is on a very different scale. Yes. This is on a real national scale. How do you even start thinking about a redesign of something that's so ingrained in American culture?
1: It was really exciting. I mean, mostly we did a lot of research. We looked at the history of Newsweek and the history of Time and news magazines and what was happening online and how those two things would work together. It was just the idea of a weekly magazine in our day and age is sort of absurd. So how do you make it relevant when you know people already know the news? We're getting it instantly now. We had to rethink the way to present news weekly
0: and all magazines have to do that now I read that people magazine was scrambling because Angelina had announced her divorce proceedings from Brad on a Monday night and therefore people wouldn't be able to publish anything in the magazine until the next week
1: and they were scrambling yes it was weird to look at news that way when someone died on a Wednesday and we were going to press on a Friday Do we tear up the whole issue and start over? Michael Jackson died on a Wednesday, for example. And so what do you do? We tore up the magazine.
0: And start over. Yep. You are as much an inventor and a creator and an entrepreneur as you are a designer. In addition to helping create The Daily Beast, you also help to create Very Short List In 2005, you developed a live design reality show for AIGA, and it's called Command X. At the time, it was a show for seven up-and-coming designers to step into the spotlight and break into the industry in front of 2,000 designers, peers, potential employers at the AIGA National Design Conference. What is it about the notion of invention and innovation that you find so fascinating in addition to design?
1: You know, I'm not a fine artist. I can't look at a blank piece of paper and think about the many possible things. I really need someone to say, oh, here's the problem that needs to be solved, and then I'm off and running. Many, many, many people were very skeptical. ...of Command X at the time. Why? Why? It seems like such a no-brainer now. I know, I know. We're doing the 11th year this year. But the first year was fantastic, and I think the girl who won got like 400 job offers that night. Wow. So it really showed... She got to show her stuff, and people responded.
0: And it's not just the winners. Ryan Fitzgibbons was, I believe, a second runner-up or first runner-up the next year. And now he's the publisher and editor of Hello,
1: Mister, one of the great, successful magazine launches of the decade. No, I I review all the entries, and I feel like I'm looking for who would I hire. Not for, like, my studio, but who has potential through what they do and what they say. I I tell everybody who asks me about it, the letter that you write— is almost more important than the work that you show. The application is one paragraph and five pieces of work. And so why is the
0: paragraph more important? That
1: tells me who you are and how you're thinking and what you're about, why you want to do the competition and, and just who you are, how you talk about yourself. So for any designer that's listening
0: that might not be aware of the competition or the requirements to be able to get in, what would be your recommendation for how to go about putting together the application?
1: Well, it'll be, I think, next May or June that it'll be up. You have to be between 22 and 26 years old because we didn't want you to have too much experience, but we wanted you to be out in the real world as opposed to still a college student. So we put an age on it. I guess I would say, I mean, just be honest about who you are. Don't try to be slick or professional or guess what we would like. Be who you are because when you're in the competition, you have 24 hours to complete an assignment. And you can't be anything but who you are. So there's no point in pretending to be something else, just as honest and sincere as possible.
0: I think that that's probably good advice for anybody looking for any kind of job. I
1: agree, which is why I really feel like it's like I'm looking to hire people when I go through the applications. And so it's still seven people at this point? Seven people start. The first problem is always a logo. They have a week before the competition to do the logo. They present it the first night and two people get cut. Command X, cut. Yep. Um, (laughs) 24 hours to do the next project, two more people get cut, and then three people compete in the final, the big finale.
0: What are some of the things that you've learned about how young people, young
1: designers compete these days? I mean, the group of seven always become fast friends, and they support each other in an incredible way. But I also like when, I mean, not that I look for this, but when someone expresses like, I'm shy. This isn't what I naturally would do. Like other people are like, get me on that stage. Let me show you what I got. But the kids who are more reserved and are like, this just seems like a really exciting way to challenge myself. I relate to that because I'm shy. So I don't relate to the let me on that stage person.
0: You seem to have a real commitment to developing the careers of young people. In addition to all the work that you've been doing now for 11 years with Command X, you have also developed a graphic design fellowship for the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. How did that come to be?
1: Well, they're in Arizona, and I'm in New York, and I was their creative director. And, you know, their situation out there was such that they couldn't find—there weren't, you know, hundreds of graphic designers in Scottsdale, Arizona looking for a job— But it's an amazing place at Taliesin West, and and they have housing that Frank Lloyd Wright designed. So I just thought it would be amazing. We could choose our designer, have them be there for a year, give them a stipend, but room and board is included because everyone who lives there eats together and works together. It's just a fantasy place. I would have wanted to do it when I was a kid. So... I proposed it to them, and they thought it was a great idea. And so you
0: choose the, yes. the winner of the fellowship.
1: Yeah. So that one I reached out to heads of graphic design programs graduate schools. You were almost running a one-man department, so you needed to have a little bit more on the ball. It would have been mean to throw someone into that water. And I approached graduate school departments and asked them to choose students who they thought should apply. So it was a much smaller pool.
0: When you were 36 years old, you married the experimental filmmaker, Jeff Sher. Now, I understand you met while working in a New York editing room for the TNT television special, American Dreamers. Apparently, you were creating the opening sequence for the show, and he was creating the closing sequence for the show, was it love at first sight? Like love in the editing room? It's like there's a song in here
1: somewhere. I was doing the open. He was doing a close, and we met at the mix. <laughs> That's what I like to say. Um, no, it wasn't love at first sight, but we did we connected. But he had a mustache, and is and that a problem? I for you? didn't. I didn't really notice him in that way until I saw him without the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he's never grown
0: the mustache back. <laughs>
1: No, but I saw the trailer for that new show, Divorce, with Sarah Jessica Parker, and he says, when did it go wrong? And she says, when you grew that mustache. <laughs> and I would never heard someone else say, like, a mustache had such an impact on their life.
0: <laughs> and is it true you got married in a movie theater? Yes, we did. It you was got-
1: a client of mine the screening room in Tribeca. It is no longer, but it was a restaurant and a movie theater with two theaters. So we walked down the center aisle of the movie theater and got married in front of the movie screen. (laughs) Oh,
0: that's so wonderful. Now, aside from your two children, do you ever collaborate?
1: A lot, actually. We're working on a show for HBO right now. What kind
0: of show? Can you talk about
1: it? I can't talk about it. Okay, darn, darn. sorry. Okay. But look for it next spring. In 2012, you
0: and Emily were invited to join the design firm Pentagram. But you decided instead to start your own firm, Eight and a Half, you work on all kinds of projects, and in addition to the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation, you've also worked with Seth Meyers and HBO, the Brooklyn Public Library, the Criterion Collection. Let's talk about the Criterion Collection. Okay. What are you doing for them?
1: When I first met the good people at the Criterion Collection, I always wondered, how does something get into the collection? What what are the qualifications? What makes you choose a film for about four years, I made these movies called Three Reasons. They were a minute and a half long, and each one was meant to tell you why you should pay attention to a certain movie. So Three Reasons was sort of my answer to that, so that I could explain why this was a great film. And it's a trailer, essentially, but there's just a format for it that makes it a little different, and we come at it from a slightly different angle. We made 110 of those.
0: Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, I read that the first thing you do before designing anything for film is actually watch the movie Yes, as a regular person. You state you watch it as a regular person. I don't take notes. notes. Exactly. How
1: many times do you watch a movie before doing any design for it? Well, actually, three reasons doesn't really involve design, but I've made many, many trailers for them for Grey Gardens, Hard Day's Night, some Harold Lloyd films just recently for John Waters' Multiple Maniacs, which is a release of a 1970 movie that was never released least before. So in those, when I was conceiving of the whole trailer, Three Reasons is very formatted. So we could do it every week in a short period of time. But the trailers each need their own whole worldview. I watch it once straight through and just get all emotional and get absorbed in the story. And then I watch it again and take notes and start sketching and thinking about what to do.
0: In some of my research for today's show, I came across your list of the top 25 movies of all time, according to Bonnie Siegler. I saw that your number one all time favorite movie is Annie Hall. And mine is Manhattan, so I can understand that. I was happily surprised to see Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind come in at number six. I think that's a really, really wonderful and somewhat unheralded great movie. Agree. But shocked to see Groundhog Day come in at 16. You thought it would be higher.
1: Or, no. Ooh.
0: I I was. Debbie,
1: I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) say.
0: I mean, I love that movie, but I don't know that I would put it in my top 20.
1: I feel like Groundhog Day, how do I put it? It put name to something that we've all felt. Yes. It's a reference point for our lives. And it comes up all the time because it was that powerful. So I, that's why it's up there for me. But I was wondering when I wrote it, because Criterion introduced me to so many films, like his Band of Outsiders on yes, that list. Yes, that was number two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then it was after Criterion.
0: <laughs> but I was happy to see, really, really happy to see that the classic original Three Days of the Condor came in at number 22. And I love
1: that movie. Oh, hated man. the remake. Hated the remake,
0: yeah, but I feel like we're living in that movie
1: right now. So good. I want to be Faye Dunaway. Of course. (laughs) I want to be Robert Redford. (laughs) I read
0: a recap of one of your talks aptly titled Eight and a Half Stories. And the writer explained that when you were asked if you had to choose a favorite type of project to work on, you stated it was hard to choose between books and motion, and explained that you see a book as an animation slowed down, each page acting as a frame. And you went on to note that books put the user in control.
1: Exactly.
0: While motion gives the designer the ability to control exactly what the user sees right and when you see it can you talk a little bit about that i've never heard the difference between book design and motion design described quite in that way well it's really powerful
1: it's also why i like doing both print and motion because they're so different in the way the user experiences them again, pre-intranet, you had complete control. Now you don't have as much control. People can watch things frame by frame and find mistakes and things like that. But back in the day, anything you do on television or film was completely 1,000% in your control. When you design a book, if you design a book well, the pacing of the book, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like there is an emotion piece. And you have to Ideally, the way the person looks at it is by going through it like that. Then you also have to consider, well, what if they go back to front? What if they just flip it through at different pieces? It's still entertaining. So it's almost like you're diving into a motion piece wherever you want, which is a funny way to think of it. You are
0: now the star of a motion piece. You did a film for lynda.com. And I was struck by something that you shared in that video as well. And you said a good rule in life and in art direction is to never be a dictator. The art director has to be a leader because there always has to be a leader. Otherwise, it's the designer version of Lord of the Flies. But a good, strong leader is almost never a dictator. And you finished up this part of the video by declaring that you were saying this with a heavy heart.
1: (laughs) You know, we all try to do the best we can, but then there are sometimes times through whatever pressures are going on or the mood you're in where it doesn't come across that way. But as long as, you know, when I'm lying in bed at night, I think about the day and what I wish I had done differently, I'm aware of when that has gone well and when I haven't done well at that. But. That's the fantasy.
0: It seems like there's a fine line between being a good, strong, decisive leader and a dictator. And we're certainly seeing this a lot. There's lots of conversation about what it means to be a strong leader and what kind of feedback you're supposed to give. Any advice for designers who want to be better leaders?
1: I think listening is really the most important thing at any level. Listen when your boss who's annoying or you think is a jerk is telling you what to do. Listen and try and understand why they're saying what they're saying, why they want what they want, and ask a million questions. And I would say the same with a client who comes at you with an absurd request. Just ask a lot of questions. Really try to understand where it's coming from because oftentimes a client will say something – They don't realize that they're asking you to do something silly or absurd. You know it won't work. So if you can draw them out through almost like a therapeutic conversation... You can get to the bottom of what the real goal is and come up with a better design solution for it. Speaking of advice, for the past
0: three years, you've had an advice column on designobserver.com titled Dear Bonnie, wherein you answer readers' questions regarding professional and ethical and social or design-related dilemmas. I love this column on Design Observer only because of the way you answer the questions. Thank you. They are The truth. You tell (laughs) the truth. And one of my favorites, it was the letter lost in London. And I thought it would be fun for me to read the question and then for you to read the answer because it is classic Bonnie Siegler. Okay. Dear Bonnie, I work at a big design firm and feel like I never get to do interesting or good work. Most of our clients are big international companies, and I'm rarely inspired by the projects we take on. I think I'm a really good designer, but I'm afraid I can't show my stuff at this job. The people who work here and our clients just don't know what good design looks like. So we're always going
1: with the boring solutions over the good ones. Lost in London. Dear Elle, and I gave three answers to this. Answer number one, find a new job. It doesn't matter how old you are. At every age, you should work at a place that values what you have to offer and where you, mostly, respect the people you work with and for. Your job doesn't sound like a good fit. If the big international companies are happy, my guess is your firm is making money, and so they are probably happy with the level of design that is going on. If you feel the opposite, you should leave. It's hard to do great work when you're unhappy. Answer number two, maybe you're not as good as you think you are. Good design happens for big international corporations all the time. It always has and it always will. It also happens for tiny little companies. Good design does not depend on the category of client. Good designers find ways to do good design regardless of the client. The problem is blaming the client when you produce work that isn't great. There is a disconnect there. It's not their fault if the final product isn't up to your standards. It's yours. Answer number three, find a new attitude. Instead of feeling helpless and lost, take control of the situation. Talk to your boss about the type of work you can do and that you'd like to do. Show her examples of solutions you wish could have been developed further. If you don't have those examples, create them. Even if the project is over, saying you want to do a different level of work is easy. Showing it is difficult. If you go with answer number three and your boss doesn't respond positively, then it may be time to go with answer number one or come to terms with the cold, hard truth of answer number two. Either way, you should shake things up and take responsibility for the work that you do. Amen,
0: sister. (laughs) I love that. Is it hard for you to be that frank or does it come easily?
1: Well, it's easy from the anonymity of my computer and keyboard. I think if somebody was sitting across from me asking me this question, it would have been a different answer. Really? I might have left out number two. (laughs) <laughs> See, that was my favorite part. No, it, it, it's important. And it's nice because the person isn't revealed. So nobody knows who it's about. And so it's a way for people to think about themselves.
0: Now, there's a documentary being made of Dear Bonnie. Tell us about that.
1: On com, they're making a documentary about me. Oh. And so they came to my studio and filmed and had me show projects and talk about work and like that. So it'll be Dear Bonnie or Bonnie Siegler, the TV show. Exactly. Awesome. I throw my cap in the air, the whole thing. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You were working on a Hillary
0: Clinton fundraiser called Laugh Your Pantsuit Off. And you did this with Amy Poehler. Tell us about how you do that kind of work and how you get those kinds of projects.
1: This is my third major election event. We did one in 2008 for Barack Obama called, I don't know if you remember, but there was a whole thing with a bridge to nowhere. So we had the event in Dumbo right over the Brooklyn Bridge, and we called it a bridge to somewhere. And then four years later, we did another one for Obama called Baracklin that was in Brooklyn we decided we had to do something because the alternative was too frightening. And this year, even more so than ever, I just couldn't sit still. So we pulled this together with a few girlfriends of mine. And Anna Gasteyer is one of them. We all lived in the same building in Dumbo. And so she reached out to her friends from SNL. And Anna and Amy both played Hillary on SNL. So it was really nice. And they hosted the event. We named it Laugh Your Pantsuit Off just to communicate the intent of the event was to have a great time and support Hillary, and we raised a million dollars.
0: Bonnie Siegler. <laughs> amazing. That is amazing. You said it design was really can't change great. the world.
1: It was really satisfying. We had 2,500 people there. It was an amazing night.
0: The last thing I want to talk to you about is something that we can expect in the next year or so, and that is Bonnie Siegler's first book. Yeah. Talk about that. This is so thrilling.
1: I finished it. It took me a few years. Mostly I would work on it, and then I'd procrastinate for a few months, and then I'd work on it and procrastinate for a few months. And I had good excuses. I have a job. Two kids, a husband. (laughs) Exactly. So it was easy to keep procrastinating. (laughs) But I finally finished it this summer, and I got an agent, so we're working on finishing it now. But the idea is my realization after 23 years of owning my own business That the clients aren't the problem. The clients aren't jerks. They're not assholes. It's not that they have bad taste or anything like that. Sometimes they just have no idea how to interact with professional creative people. And that goes for architects. And I mean, every time we get together, we all complain about our clients, various things, whether it be business side related, like contracts and money, or whether it be creative related. So I decided to talk to the other side and write a book that teaches them how to work with creative people. And it's not about making our jobs easier in any way. It's really about making the collaboration better because there's two of us every time. So this just really is a real how-to guide of how to work with creative people.
0: And you're going to be telling the truth. Yes. Bonnie, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you about your remarkable career and all the work you're doing. Thank you, Debbie. You can learn more about Bonnie Siegler at 8.5.com. And you can read her Dear Bonnie columns at designobserver.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.